stop in front of the large library, and there was a big lawn there, find a station, and he would start to preach, to preach it each and every one who passed by. His message in his preaching was typically focused on condemning sin. And the fact is, he was right, right? There were lots of sin happening on that campus, myself included. So we were all very focused sinners. So he condemned sin, and then with that, he announced judgment. Lots of judgment. On the one hand, he seemed angry, on the other hand, almost joyful in announcing judgment. He's as if he took pleasure announcing judgment on these sinful college students. While he was there, it was always a spectacle. The students would begin to gather, some just because they wanted to, to listen in, some to mock, some wanted to argue with him. A couple of times he stirred things up enough that some students picked him up and carried him to the pond not far from uh, the library and threw him in the pond uh, in response to his preaching as well. But some, as they listened, would then talk back to him as he preached. So some would say to Preacher Bob, well, who are you to judge? Another would say, well, well, my God isn't a God of judgment, but a God of love. Another would say, well, my Jesus doesn't judge anyone. So who is right? Preacher Bob, who gladly, angrily preached judgment? The students who rejected his message and said that God would never judge because he loves. How are we to think about God, judgment, and his love? So we'll explore this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Micah, to Micah chapter 1. So I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or go to your Bible app. You're opening up your actual physical Bible. You probably don't spend a lot of time in Micah, so it's okay if it takes you a little bit of time to find it. You might go to the table of contents there. It's one of the smaller books that we often refer to as minor prophets, not because they're of less importance, but somebody named that because they're shorter in length. And so the book of Micah, if you find Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, you're in the neighborhood there. So if you would turn with me there to the book of Micah as we start a new series this week, in the book of Micah. Micah 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsha. In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open. Like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What's the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. 
All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. But this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. And Bethlehem, Ephrath, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zaanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marah wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgression of Israel, therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Agzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. Once you not preach of such things, disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for there is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them, they break through and pass the gate, going out of it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Today, as we look at these first two chapters of Micah, we see that God warns of judgment 
and calls us away from rebellion by holding out the promise of salvation. Let's say we'll look at our passage in two parts. First, we'll see the seriousness of sin. And then second, the graciousness of salvation. So the seriousness of sin and the graciousness of salvation is by preparation. We'll spend the vast majority of our time on the first one. So don't despair that it's going to take the same amount of time for the second. So first, the seriousness of sin. We see this in chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 11. You might be asking yourself this morning, as I mentioned, to turn to the book of Micah, you might ask, well, why? Why, look at this relatively obscure, tiny book, written hundreds of years ago, addressing some challenging topics, if you heard as we read. Why, how could that be possibly relevant to us today? But friends, in order to be maturing Christians, growing in grace across the years, we are always helped to study all of God's Word. Let's move back and forth from the old and the new, different genres, from Romans, which we just ended, to the Old Testament, to the prophets. And if we do the hard work, it does take hard work to cross centuries and to cross culture. But if we do the hard work on Sundays and in community groups together, I think we'll find this book to actually be very relevant for us and helpful for life today in greater Boston. The author, the author of this book identifies in verse 1 as Micah. And we don't know more about Micah than what we have in this book and one mention of him uh, in the prophet Jeremiah. He tells us where he's from, Micah of Morasheth. So he's from this small agricultural community. So it seems to be uh, sort of a rural background that Micah has come from. And the first line also locates its time in history. As he says, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is often how they would write and identify this is our moment in history. So this would have been about 742 to 686 B.C. So Micah comes after the, promise, the prophets Hosea and Amos, and he's there during the same time of the more well-known prophet Isaiah. And notice verse 1, he says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. So Micah himself understands this, and he wants the hearers to understand that these are not just Micah's thoughts, but what he speaks, he's speaking the very word of God. And we see the focus of this word of the Lord, verse 1, he says, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now what had once been a unified nation, Israel, had broken into two parts. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten of the twelve tribes under King Solomon's son Rehoboam had broken away, formed the nation of Israel, Samaria its capital. Now, the history of Samaria was always a dark one as they embraced rebellion and sin. Now, at this time, Samaria had become quite wealthy. The city was beautiful, spectacular. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. So ten tribes went north, two remained, Judah and Benjamin. Judah had experienced peace and prosperity recently under the reign of King Uzziah. And we'll see in this book that Micah's ministry is focused primarily on Judah. That's where he lives, and Jerusalem. Although we'll see he also speaks explicitly to, um, to, to Israel as well. Now prophets, when we think of prophets today, we think prophets primarily spend their time foretelling the future. Speaking of what will come in the future. And they certainly do some of that. 
But they do more forthtelling even than they do foretelling, meaning they were preaching in that day in the moment. So they were hearers in that day. They're preaching God's word to God's people at the moment while they do, in the midst of that, speak often of what will come in the future. Micah begins his words with a repeated command in verse 2. Look down at verse 2. He says to them, hear and pay attention. So he's saying this is the, the first intended respo- response, which is listen. Listen closely and heed what you hear. Understand and apply this to your life. This is the call for us today as well, right? We want to be a people who hear God's word, who listen, and who are eager to heed God's word, even when it it presses on various areas of our life. And Micah's message, we've already seen, is for Samaria and Jerusalem, but it's also, as we see in the text, for all the peoples of the earth. So he zeroes in on God's people, but this word is also for all the world. And that's how God typically works. He speaks to his own people, but also to the world. The sense of this text is, at the beginning, is is like a court of law. Look at verse 2. He says, let the Lord God be a witness against you. So it's as if Samaria, Jerusalem, the nations are on trial, and the Lord is a witness against them. We see in verse 3 that the startling statement that judgment was coming. We see this picture that seeks to describe the sovereignty and the authority and the power of God as he comes down, the image of him coming down to tread upon the high places, the mountains melting under him. So this is the judgment of God that's coming, and it will be carried out by the Assyrian army. When the Assyrian army would come in and overtake Israel, Mike is saying that's the very hand of God the very judgment of God. It's the Assyrian army, yes, but behind it is the very judgment of God. But why? Why was this judgment starting? Look down at verse 5. He says, all this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. Transgression is the sense of deliberate rebellion against God. Sin, the idea of wayward lives that are straying from the path that God held out for them. So in their rebellion, Jacob, Israel, they were intentionally, consistently choosing to disobey God's word and God's ways. This was not some one-off sin, but this was ongoing, deliberate sin. Month after month, year after year, committed by the people of God. And the people of God were in a covenant relationship with God. And yet by their sin, they're forsaking, they're breaking this covenant that God had brought them into. What are some specific examples of these transgressions? Verse 5, he says, well, well, what is the transgression of Jacob? He says, is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? This term, the high place, helps us here. The Lord here speaks to the capitals of both nations, uh, to Samaria for Israel, Jerusalem for Judah, as uh, representative of the nations. These capitals are just like all the peoples in the nation. 
Now, in the ancient world of that day, powerful cities were, were normally in higher locations. It was easier to defend yourself. So if you wanted to build a strong city, you would build it on a high place. So, so on one hand, this high place alludes to power, but mostly it alludes to high places in that day were set apart as places of worship. High places had long been set aside in this reason and utilized for the worship of Baal and other deities. So they would often have Asherah poles and pillars and altars. But God had told his people consistently not to go and worship in the high places. In fact, where you live, he told them, take down the high places, destroy the high places, that that sort of worship would not continue. And yet so often the people didn't do that. They didn't follow the instructions of God, and they joined in the worship of these other deities in these high places. And the word of the Lord turns to Samaria, verse 6, a city of luxury and wealth, but corrupted by sin. And he says, Samaria, the city, will be like a heap, destroyed. You'll be able to plant a vineyard there. The city will be gone because of the judgment that was coming. So here we see that when the judgment of God comes, there is no resisting him. Then we see a specific way that this was playing out in, in the idolatry of the people of God. Verse 7, the Lord says through Micah that their carved images will be beaten to pieces. All their idols will lay in waste. So they were engaged in ongoing idolatry, which was spiritual adultery. They were neglecting the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment God had given to his people was this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here they're not loving God in that way, they're loving these idols. They're also breaking the first and second of the Ten Commandments. So this idolatry was happening both in Israel and in Judah. God's people were looking to someone other than their covenant God to be their, their help, to be their sustainer, to be the source of their hope. Now, for many of them in that day, they, they probably wouldn't have thought of themselves as completely denying God, but they would think of it more like I'm adding other deities to my God. After all, they, they could not see their God. They we're not to build any represent, representation of their God. So let me have some of these gods, some of these idols I can actually see. And if one God is good, aren't more better. But adding to God was never an option that the covenant God gave. He alone was to be their God. And friends, idolatry is a great threat to us today as well. If you remember in Romans, we saw all the way back in chapter 1, how we're all prone to worship the created rather than the creator, to build up idols. We may or may not have an actual physical representation, but, but in idolatry, what we're doing is we're looking to something other than God to do for us what only God can do. When we engage in trusting in something else, looking to something else for hope, something else, someone else for meaning, something else or someone else for life, then, friends, we're committing spiritual adultery. We're engaging in idolatry. 
Now, sometimes we take a sinful thing and make it an idol. Very often, though, we take a good thing, even a gift from God. But we so elevate it that it becomes for us an idol. So in a city like Boston, we might, many of us, be tempted to allow educational achievement to become an idol. If I reach this level, then I'll be someone. If I cross this threshold, this degree, then I'll have peace in life. Or it might be our wealth. If I'm able to accumulate enough wealth, if my investments are at this level, then I'll be at peace. Then I'll be someone. It might be our success in any number of areas of life. Whatever you judge is enough success. It might be our physical health, our security, our safety. If I keep my body healthy, that is life. It might be relationships, asking a relationship to, to bring true meaning to you. And so, friend, I, I wonder if you're honest where you might find idolatry creeping into your life. Who or what in your life are you looking to, honestly, to do for you what only God can do? And, friends, this is one of the many reasons that we we need a church family because this is hard to detect in our own hearts. So that's why we're often helped to, to study the scriptures together in a small group or a community group, as we call them here, so that as, maybe as you hear someone else talk about the idols they're struggling with, you may say, oh, that's, that's me. My heart is like their heart. Or maybe through discussion together, they, they help you to unearth together the idol that drives your life. As the text continues, we then see a godly response to the seriousness of sin and the deserved judgment. We see this starting in verse 8 as we see Micah's response and we see in Micah deep mourning. Micah knows that God's people deserve this judgment, but he takes no pleasure in declaring it. He's not like the, the campus preacher that I mentioned. No, Micah is brokenhearted by the rebellion of God's people. So we see in verse 8 that he, he's going around in a loincloth, lamenting and wailing, sounding like a jackal, making this crying out. God had been extraordinarily patient with his people, but now, finally, judgment was coming. And Micah was weeping, even as he shared this news. Because sadly, what had started in Samaria had made its way to Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. He says, For her wounds is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So this is not only the sin of Israel, it is also the sin of Judah. And so Micah sees his role as declaring this heavy word, but he does so through tears. Friends, that's the heart that we see in Jesus as well, as he weeps over Jerusalem. Matthew 23, 37, words of Jesus, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
Friends, for those of us who are Christians, as God's people today, we must tell the truth about the seriousness of sin, about the reality of judgment, what it means for both Christians and the world. But friends, we, we take no joy in announcing judgment. We tell the truth out of love and through tears. We should be brokenhearted as we share this news with the world. Micah then anticipates the coming of the Assyrians as they're going to arrive and overtake Samaria and then make their way down towards Jerusalem. Verse 10 and following, he names off these cities of how, how the, the Assyrians will now work their way in that direction. He works out in a radius from his own hometown of uh, Moresheth Gath. And in this, he takes the Hebrew name of a number of these towns and he turns it into a warning as he uses puns and wordplay. And he's saying that town after town will fall under the Assyrians. The first town and the last towns he names, Gath and Adullam, these were key towns in the history of Israel's great king, David. And these towns would fall. Some examples of the word play, verse 10, this town, Bethlehephra, means the house characterized by dust. And Micah says what will happen is they will now roll themselves in the dust. Shafir, in verse 11, or beauty town, will now be marked, he says, by nakedness and shame. And so forth, throughout this list of towns, he, he's describing this picture of judgment falling. So verse 16, they're told to make themselves bald, to mourn in the face of this coming judgment. And in 722 B.C., the conquest of Israel would be complete. 2 Kings 17 tells us of the fall of Samaria. A few years later, the Assyrians would work their way down towards Jerusalem, and these towns would fall, but God would preserve Judah for a time. At the beginning of chapter 2, the Lord, through Micah, turns to another area of their rebellion. Look down at verse 1. Micah calls their sins here wickedness and evil. And what was the wickedness and the evil? He describes that some of the people are laying in their bed at night rather than going to sleep and receiving sleep as a gift from God on their bed. They're devising plans of how they can steal from others. Look at verse 2. He says, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. So they, they think about it at night. In the morning, they have the power to do so. And so they get up and they act upon it. So coveting and greed were filling their days and their nights as the wealthy and the power, powerful took land from others, took the inheritance of women and men and families. They oppressed the weak. In response, in verse 3 to 5, the Lord through Micah pronounces how judgment will come on those who are carrying out this wickedness. Those who plot a disaster, he says, will suffer disaster themselves. Friends, what we see here is that God saw what they were doing. God knew their thoughts on their bed. It was in the dark. Perhaps they thought no one would see. No one knows. But God sees and God knows. And God saw their actions, all of their actions. He saw their motivations. 
It brings a word for us as well. God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motivations. He knows and he sees. In these sins, they move from violating the first great commandment to the second one, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, you're not loving neighbor when you're stealing from them, when you're oppressing them. And friends, greed and coveting, oppression are dangerous for us today as well. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, says this, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many So friends, we think about this text and how it speaks to the danger of coveting, greed, and oppression. This word must first be applied to God's people, to the church, to ourselves. Now, God's people, we, we do have a voice to the world, but first we must speak to ourselves. And then, yes, we speak to the world about justice. We speak against oppression. We'll see more of that in this prophet in the weeks to come. We want to be careful here. This is not saying that accumulating wealth is itself inherently sinful. For we see many wealthy people across the scriptures who God blesses and they use their wealth for the glory of God. So for instance, just a couple of weeks ago as we wound down Romans in Romans 16, if you remember Phoebe, Phoebe was wealthy and she was a patron, a benefactor of Paul. Paul was able to go on his mission because of the wealth of Phoebe. So we don't, we don't oversimplify and say all wealth is evil. No. We do have to be alert to the reality of greed, though, and coveting. So, friend, where in your life might greed have a foothold? And I have to admit that, in general, I think this is a really hard one to pick up in our own hearts. Pride is typically really hard for us to see, and greed would be right there with it. If I think about, you know, across the years of ministry, I've had people come many times and say, you know, here, here's this sin in my life, and help me to think about this. And I can name lots of main sins that I hear from. You know how rarely someone comes and sits down and says, I need you to help me think about greed, because I'm feeling really greedy. It's not that it never happens, but it's certainly one of the minority sins that we're thinking about. It's so challenging to see, because it's so normal in the world we live in. So friend, where might greed be? And, and related to that, where might you find yourself coveting? Desiring what someone else has. And you find yourself, you know, scrolling through social media and coveting their life, her car, his vacation. And friends, are there areas in your life through your own personal life or through your work that what you're doing may be contributing to the oppression of others? I mean, does your business in some way oppress the weak? And then we see another form of their sin in verses 6 through 11. 
We see that the people who are trapped in this sin, who are walking in this ongoing rebellion, they wanted some preachers who would affirm them in the choices they're making. So these people who are engaging in idol worship and stealing and coveting, they wanted some preachers, some prophets who would say, you're right. And across the scriptures, certainly through the Old Testament, we have both true prophets and false prophets, true teachers and false teachers. And so there's some teachers who, who came and they countered the message of Micah. Verse 6, they say to Micah, don't preach. One shouldn't preach these things, they say. Micah's response, verse 7, should this be said, O house of Jacob? And look at their response, verse 7. They say the false preachers, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? So listen carefully. Their argument is that no, this judgment can't be happening because God does not become impatient. God is patient, they're saying. So that's what the false teachers are saying. Now it's absolutely true. God is patient. That's not all that he is. In Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, the Lord reveals himself to Moses. And listen to what the Lord says. That's what he says of himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So they picked out this one portion that God is slow to anger, which is true. But they didn't continue on where he also said, but he will also by no means clear the guilty. So in their false teaching, they take one attribute of God that is true, but they make it ultimate. God is patient, extraordinarily patient. But he's also righteous, holy, and just. And friends, just as false teaching was dangerous then, it's a danger for us today as well. Now, there are different ways this false teaching plays out. Sometimes false teaching shows itself by withholding truths that we think are unattractive. We attract people to this message by holding things out that people would say, I don't want to hear that. So, for instance, in, in our world today, any kind of judgment from God would be unattractive in Boston. So, so a false teacher would say, I'm going to hold that out. Or sometimes these false teachers spread things that are attractive but are untrue. So for instance, a, a popular thinking would be all religions are ultimately the same. So that would be a popular teaching. It's contrary to the Bible and so many other world religions actually say we're not all the same. But it's a popular one. So, so a false teacher would come and say, no, all religions are the same. All religions lead to God. And often those with power and wealth seek to surround themselves with some who would affirm what they're doing. Just like what's happening in Israel and Judah, it happens today. We saw it in our nation during slavery. When many pastors horrifically justified slavery for their people, even though this is so clearly contrary to God's word, but power, wealth, influence them. I mean, Pastor, you need some money for your church. If you want me to stay in your church and keep giving, you shouldn't preach against slavery because I own slaves. And we're appalled by that today, and appropriately so. 
But there are other ways this plays out today as well. There are some false teachings that portray America as a uniquely Christian nation. A nation that has a, a special relationship with God unlike any other and that this nation plays a, a larger part of God's plan than other, and therefore whoever leads this nation is of greatest importance. And so God has a particular choice of this person. It's popular, false teaching. Or some would want to reject any kind of judgment and say of Jesus. No, Jesus would not judge. Jesus is love and grace, but there's no judgment. Friends, it's the epitome of Western arrogance for us to say Jesus does this or doesn't do this when we're saying something different than what Jesus himself said. We have these gospel accounts that hold out Jesus' clear teaching and his life. So who are we as Western Americans now to say, no, 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 the Jesus we're creating is different than actually what we see in the scriptures. We remake God in our own image. So friend, where, where are you tempted to be drawn to teaching that agrees with everything you already believe? Friend, unless we're perfect, and I don't think we're all, we are, our God will regularly be correcting us. So if I have a God that agrees with everything I'm doing, I don't really have a God. I've just created something in my mind that will affirm everything that I already want to do in life. Now, friends, this judgment that we see in our Bible today is hard for us. It's very hard for modern Western hearers. But there are a number of things, friends, we have to keep in mind to, to handle this well. One, God's anger is different than our anger. God does get angry at sin, but his anger is not like mine. I mean, as a dad raising kids over the years, numerous times where I got angry at my kids, but in impatience, but sinful impatience. It was not righteous anger. It was sinful anger. And so often we, we put our anger on God. But he is perfect just, patient, loving, and holy. And he does get angry at sin. That's true. Author Becky Pippert says this way, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. We are dead against whatever is destroying the one we love. So it's a part of what drives the anger of God against sin. Is he sees just how destructive it is to his people and to others. And so, so many of us today in, in Boston, we would pull back from the idea of a God who judges. And we would say, this is the completely reasonable, rational view. But again, friend, it's arrogance because they're many people around the world, that that actually would not be a challenging view for them, but the hard view for them in some parts of the world would be a God who freely forgives. In many parts of the world, a God who judges is not hard to wrap your mind around, but a God who gives grace, that's hard for them to wrap their mind around. 
And friends, so many in our world who've endured great injustice actually see the need for judgment, are able to endure injustice in this world because there is judgment. Theologian Miroslav Volf, who is Croatian, has seen great violence in the Balkans, writes this. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, look it's easy for you when you're safe and comfortable to imagine a world where judgment isn't actually necessary. Friends, when we know injustice, it actually can help us endure through it when we know that God, the one perfect judge, he will finally bring justice. So friends, what do we need to hear today from the text? The call to heed, to respond. And friends, Jesus calls us to do the same. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he is passed from death to life. So we see the seriousness of sin. But then second, and just briefly, we see at the end of the text the graciousness of salvation. The graciousness of salvation. So we see the darkness of their transgression, the darkness of judgment that's coming, and yet these two verses, verse 12 and 13, see a light shining in the darkness. Now, friends, across Micah, there's plenty of heaviness and darkness in this book. Well, you may be tempted, even this morning, to say, why Micah? But, friend, if you'll hang with us, we'll see beautiful grace in Micah. We'll see some of the richest glimpses of grace in the entire Bible in this book. And, friends, here in these last two verses, we see that God says that he will surely assemble and that he will gather the remnant of Israel. So even though transgression and sin and judgment has been promised, he promises also he will preserve a remnant. Now, a remnant implies that not all are included, but it assures us that God will keep and preserve his true people. God has always kept a remnant for himself. And notice the certainty. He says, I will surely assemble. He doesn't say, I, I might do it or I could do it. He says, I will surely do it. And then look at this glorious future. He says, I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, this imagery of sheep and flocks and shepherds is common in the Old and New Testament. And friends, here we see the Lord himself is the shepherd who comes to gather the people. 
If you remember last week in Romans 16, we saw how the, the gospel had been held out across the scriptures. The prophets had pointed to it, often in mystery, often cloudy, but it's still there. This is an example of that. Friends, here the promise that the Lord, the true king, will come to his people and his care for his people will be complete. God's people will be lacking in nothing. And who is the shepherd who would come? It is now seen and known. It is Jesus Christ himself. And friends, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 10, we have this beautiful, rich teaching of Jesus where he says numerous things about himself. One, he says he's the door to the sheepfold. In other words, he's the way in to the flock. But not only that, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep don't die for the shepherd. The shepherd dies for the sheep. Friends, even in the midst of the deserved judgment of God's people, God's grace and mercy shines through as he promises the Savior who has now come. So friends, is sin serious? Yes. Does God judge sin? Yes. But also this same God in his great love has provided a way out, deliverance, salvation for sinners and rebels like us. And friends, that's what we celebrated last weekend. The good shepherd, Christ, went to the cross. And there on the cross, he endured the judgment that you and I deserve because of our sins. So the just judgment of God poured out on Christ. He died and was buried, was raised triumphant so that we don't have to experience the judgment that we deserve. Instead, we receive the undeserved grace of God, the undeserved mercy and love of God. So friend, the cross of Christ shows us the seriousness of sin because payment was essential. Christ's death was necessary. And the cross shows us the graciousness of salvation. Through Christ's death, salvation has been secured. We don't have to cower under judgment anymore. There is no judgment for you if you're in Christ, friends. What glorious grace in Christ. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, we so want you to see the beauty of grace. I understand there are parts of this today that are hard to hear, that can be confusing. We'd love to tell you more. We'd love for you to know the beauty, the grace that's found in Christ. And friends, for those who, who are Christians, friends, we should be sobered as we think about our own sin. We should feel the seriousness of sin. Be aware of the judgment that we deserve. But friends, we should glory. We should be amazed. We should be filled with thankfulness that the good shepherd laid down his life for you. That you would have salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, set free from darkness. So friend, let us today be thankful for that, stunned by that, and able to go out and fight sin day by day because of the grace of God to work within us. This morning, in a moment, we're going to sing together as a means of response, celebrating this grace in song. Another means of response is the connection form, uh, on, if you're on, watching this online, or also the card in your worship guide. So maybe there's some ways you'd like to know more. This may be very new to you. It may be quite confusing to you. Or maybe there's some ways that we could pray for you. You can note that on the connection card. On your way out, you can drop it in the box, box, or you can also just leave it on your chair. So we're going to bow our heads for time of silent praying. Then I'll lead us in praying together, and then we're going to sing. Let's bow our heads together.
Father, we ask for help today by the Spirit because we admit that we're often unable, unwilling to see the seriousness of our own sin. We're prone to self-justification. We've sort of breathed in the culture around us. So would you help us to see the weightiness of our own sin? Our desperate state apart from Christ, but would you help us to see the beauty of the shepherd who came to lay down his life for sheep like us? What a savior, what a king. So I pray for Christians, we'd be encouraged today by that. Sobered and empowered by the spirit to live differently, fighting sin and growing in godliness and grace. And Lord, I pray for some who are new to exploring Christianity. And I pray they see the goodness of God who doesn't deny injustice, but has brought grace and forgiveness, transformation and hope. Help us now as we Respond in singing in Jesus' name. Amen.